There is no children's church this morning and this month as well, so the young ones will be joining us in our worship time around the Word of God. Uh, just before I begin, a thank you to Christian for covering last week for me and John Oral for taking the evening service. As you know, Debbie and I were a bit delayed in Oregon because of ongoing circumstances with my, my parents, so I thank you also for your prayers and the many encouraging words that you've given to us. That has also, that extended stay, set me up behind a week on my study in Philemon, which I would like to finish this morning before we enter into more of our Christmas-themed messages. So if you have your Bibles, we will be in Philemon, and I'll begin reading in verse 17, but before, I would like to pray that God would bless our time of worship around his word. Father, thank you for the richness of your written word. We thank you for how it speaks to our hearts as believers, as your elect ones, being given the Spirit of God who indwells us now that we might have understanding in the things that belong to you, things that involve heavenly wisdom and are not discernible by unsaved men and women. But you've granted these things to your church, your people, and we are grateful for it. As we open up this written word, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in ways that we need to hear from you. I pray that you would give me clarity of voice and thought, but that each of us this morning would have ears that are open and prepared to hear your spirit speak to your church. I thank you for this rich testimony given to us in this very small letter written to a man named Philemon, circumstances that you were deeply involved with 2,000 years ago, but remain relevant and important to the church today. So help us to see these things this morning, and not just to see and to understand, but help us to be sanctified by them. Change us because we have spent time in your word this morning, and I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. As you know, the subject of this little letter has been specifically restoration and forgiveness. But the broader context, I hope we understand by now, is the fellowship of our faith together in Christ Jesus. I pick up reading in verse 17, Paul writes to Philemon, If then you regard me a partner, accept him, Onesimus, as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, I'm writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, he greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, I'm sorry, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The repeated use of the words brothers, beloved, beloved brother, fellow workers, fellow prisoners, should continue to instruct us that within the family of God, matters are to be handled with holiness and in a loving way. 
And as we've moved our way through this little letter that I believe is rich with doctrine for the church, I hope it becomes apparent to us that our relationships one with another are precious to God and they are defined by Christ. They are ordered by His Word. We can be prone to deal with relationships between us as Christians in a way that is marked by our own preferences, our own choices, because we presume wrongly that we are free to do so. That we are free to conduct business as we see fit. And should someone else step into our social connections and give counsel regarding our behavior, we can be inclined to think, get your nose out of my business. This is my matter. This is my private affair. And sadly, for such attitudes, there is a failure to understand that when, by faith, we enter into the fellowship of the gospel, into the family of God, we are now under a new master. Jesus Christ is the one who determines how we relate to one another in his eternal household. And we may want to demand our own way. We might be a bit defiant to the counsel of others. We might recoil at the instruction being given to us in our relationships. But the question that we must always ask ourselves in that moment is, who is the master? Is it me or is it Christ? Paul had entered into that tricky business of becoming a third party between two individuals that needed to be reconciled, Onesimus and Philemon. Philemon here is the seasoned believer who has clearly been offended by Onesimus. Onesimus is the once unbeliever who sinned against his master, but who has now come to faith in Christ, has confessed and repented of his sins to Christ, and has now returned to his master to be reconciled to him. Paul is right there in the middle of this. He's already been drawn into this matter when he met Onesimus. They developed a relationship. He led Onesimus to faith in Christ, and he labored together with Onesimus for the gospel as Onesimus ministered to his needs as well. Paul then enters this delicate work of bringing counsel to Philemon by encouraging him to do what is proper, as it says back in verse 8, for the fellowship of the faith. Do what is proper in the family of God. Now, were Philemon to be a different sort of Christian, he could have easily told Paul, get your nose out of my business. I can handle my own household. I will run my own business. I don't need you telling me what to do in my household and in my family. But Philemon is not that sort of man, is he? Philemon was the sort of Christian that Paul had great confidence in and who had a reputation within the body of Christ. And you can see that in verse 6 and 7. He carried that kind of Christian dignity such that if Paul would come to him and speak into his life, this man was open and ready to receive counsel. Now, in our previous study, we saw how Paul was not only willing to bring truth into this discussion, but he was willing to help the process of reconciliation, even if necessary, with his own pocketbook. 
willing to pay the cost that Onesimus had cost Philemon. In addition to that, Paul teaches the church that as believers serve each other spiritually, we actually become indebted to one another. The fellowship of the church involves us in each other's lives such that other believers provide a spiritual investment in our lives that has eternal value, and it has value because the Spirit of the living God is working within those labors and those services and ministries to accomplish a work that prepares each of us for living eternally with Christ. And this leaves us owing ourselves to those who make spiritual investments in us as we minister the goodness of Christ to them in return. You see the reciprocal work that's being done here. Paul was not willing to pay the debt of Onesimus so that he could later collect financial interest on his money. The benefit, you will notice, in verse 20 for Paul was that Philemon would have a proper response to the fellowship of faith and indeed the whole church in Colossae. And Paul's heart would be refreshed in Christ. Our study picks up from this point this morning and introduces us to what may be considered, I believe, a generous obligation for fellowship. And I refer to verse 21 to the end of this letter. Now, there's a reason that I've chosen the word generous and obligation. In particular, the word obligation for our final heading here, because as is so often, things connected with church fellowship, church community, are treated as optional endeavors. We can take them or leave them. After all, is it not volunteer time? We're lay workers. We give ourselves, at least some of us, most of us, give ourselves in the freedom of our time to do these things. We're here, we engage with one another because we choose to do so. It is right and proper that we do make that choice. But at the same time, there is an obligation to what we are to be doing together in the fellowship. The letter to Philemon shows a general obligation to our fellowship with Christ and with his church. But there is a specific obligation here as well. The obligation to forgive and restore those who have come in repentance. We have an obligation to this. And Paul is showing us this by this letter. Christ has given us this rich living example of what forgiveness and restoration should look like. And this obligation is not based on our feelings as if we might forgive and restore when I'm not hurting as much any longer. It is not based upon the severity of the offense as if the really huge offenses permit me to remain hostile at least for a season. And it most certainly is not based on an obligation that comes by financial cost, as was the case with Philemon and Onesimus. There were financial matters involved here. Rather, the obligation toward the believer and toward the church regarding fellowship and forgiveness and restoration is based on the truth that you and I have been forgiven by God for all offenses at the cost of his son's sacrifice and his death. And if God has been this gracious to me in my sins and in bringing me into fellowship in his family, how could I possibly deny 
that the same graces towards others who have offended me in far less ways would be withheld. In this letter, Paul teaches us the importance of treating biblical truth as an imperative, as that which commands our lives to do that which is proper in the family of God. At the same time, his appeal, Paul's appeal to Philemon, teaches us to do this willingly because we desire to please the one who now orders us by his own righteousness. And it's this willing desire to please our master that leads us also to consider the word generous, a willingness to give of ourselves, into investing in this fellowship together that we call the church, the gospel church. When we come to the place in our walk of faith that we serve one another out of love for Christ, we're going to serve in abundance rather than out of personal convenience. I appreciate a quote from John Kitchen who writes in his commentary these words, Ultimately, this world is changed through individual choices made by free hearts bound by divine love, not by legalistic demands. In other words, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation because of the love of Christ. And this is why Paul could write to Philemon as he does here in verses 21 to verse 25. We begin this morning with a genuine submission in verse 21. Now going back to verse 20, Paul, remember, has expressed his desire to be refreshed by Philemon hearing that he had been willing to accept Onesimus back as Paul would be accepted. Paul knew that for Philemon to embrace this man back in forgiveness and restoration would lead the whole church community there in Colossae to do the same thing. And again, we refer to this man's reputation in verse 6 and 7. He was well known to this church and well respected for his godly influence. If Philemon would embrace Onesimus, as he would embrace Paul. It is certain that the church would as well. Paul had come to love Onesimus as a new believer in Christ. Onesimus had stayed with Paul for a season of time. They had shared in the ministry, worked together. He had served Paul's needs while he was in prison, chained and limited in his ability to work. And they developed a father-son relationship in Christ. Paul cared deeply about this man. And the benefit that they longed for in sending Onesimus back to Philemon was to hear that this former rebellious slave was embraced now as a devoted brother in Christ. And then in verse 21, Paul almost pauses here in the language, in the Greek language. He almost pauses as he contemplates and takes up the quill again in verse 21 and continues to write of his trust in Philemon as a man of gospel conviction. I have so come to appreciate the implications of this little letter in regard to the Christian fellowship that every church should enjoy. Undergirding this kind of confidence in Philemon, I hope you understand, as well as the commendation that Paul gives of Onesimus, is a working trust, a working trust that these men had developed in the body of Christ that I think is so needed today. These men had labored together. And I'm talking about all three of them and many in the Colossian church as well. Philemon, Paul, Onesimus. 
They had labored together. Patterns of service, patterns of character had been established whereby they had convictions about each other. We can speak about our convictions of Scripture. We can speak about our convictions in doctrine. We can speak about our convictions in the Lord God Himself. But what about our convictions in one another? Can we express what Paul is expressing here regarding Onesimus, regarding Philemon? Because we've worked together, we've served together, and we've seen these patterns of character and ministry emerge in one another such that we can express this kind of confidence, this kind of conviction? Are we so experienced in our service for the gospel with one another that we can commend each other in this way? That we can be confident in how others will act properly in the body of Christ. We observe here that Paul is confident specifically in Philemon's obedience. And I think that's a fascinating expression for Paul to make because to this point in the letter, he's been making appeals, entreaties. He hasn't wanted to make commandments of Philemon. He was determined to appeal to Philemon and for Philemon not to respond out of compulsion but according to his own free will. There is a dynamic work here that is expressed in verse 21 that is so necessary to the fellowship of our faith. William Hendrickson, a commentator that I refer often to, he describes this as gospel obedience. Douglas Moo, in his commentary, views this as a gospel imperative. Paul is appealing as a brother in Christ to Philemon, but then he mentions in verse 21, I have confidence in your obedience. In other words, brother to brother, they can make an appeal. They can encourage one another to walk in a certain way, but he has confidence in this man's gospel obedience. Because the gospel lays imperatives upon us. As gospel believers, we're held captive to the will of Jesus Christ. We have now come under His Lordship. He is our Master. So that when another believer comes to me and says, Mont, I think you need to be doing this differently. There's a sense of obligation that I have. He may be requesting. He may be appealing but I'm under obligation to Christ. It's that gospel of imperative that is in play here in verse 21. In our modern church times, I think you and I hear so often Christian liberties, Christian freedoms being thrown around so casually as if the commandments in the Word of God are somehow optional. Our freedom in Christ literally is from our former slavery to sin. Yet at the same time, Romans chapter 6, we are in chains to the righteousness of Christ. We're bound to the righteousness of Christ. So as Paul appeals to Philemon to accept Onesimus as a brother in Christ who's repented and been forgiven by Christ, it's now a gospel imperative for Philemon and the Colossian church to embrace this man with the same forgiveness and restoration that has been granted to him by God through faith in Christ. Paul makes an appeal to Philemon for love's sake, remember, in verse 9. But Philemon is bound 
in obedience to Christ to forgive and to restore as he has been forgiven and restored. Because Paul knew well the gospel integrity of this man Philemon, he had great conviction that Philemon would be obedient to Christ in receiving Onesimus back. He writes this letter to Philemon to make an appeal because of his confidence in Philemon's devotion and his reputation to obey Christ in all matters of gospel living. Yet Paul doesn't stop at Philemon's mere obedience, does he? Look at how verse 21 continues. Since I know, there's that confidence again. Since I know that you will do even more than I say. Hence the word generosity. Paul was not just confident in Philemon's obedience, but this man had a spirit of generosity to do more than he was asked to do. Now there are many speculations as to what Paul had in mind with this more that Philemon was to do. Some believe that Paul is suggesting that Philemon set this man free no longer as a slave, but set him free. Give him his papers. Others suggest that this was an invitation for Philemon to send Onesimus back to Paul, because remember, Paul had desired Onesimus to stay with him and continue to be useful. And I suppose that these thoughts or suggestions could have been on Paul's mind, but I think it's rather significant that Paul doesn't explain any further what more Philemon was to do. He just has confidence that Philemon will do more. If he wanted something specific, Paul that is, he would have necessarily had to tell Philemon what that specific nature is. He knows that Philemon's not a mind reader. I'm not certain that Paul was hinting for Onesimus' freedom from slavery. You go back to what was read this morning in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1. Listen to what Paul wrote to this church in Colossae. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. That does not sound like emancipation to me. Rather, he is telling the masters that own slaves, you treat your slaves with fairness and justice, knowing that you have submitted to a master as well in heaven. In my thinking, the fact that Paul gives no hint of the more that he knew Philemon would do implies that Paul has in mind the generosity of spirit in Philemon to act beyond the mere minimum that might be expected in obedience. And think about the context of that. Paul tells Philemon, you forgive and restore. Here comes Onesimus. Philemon says, well, okay, I forgive you and I restore you. That would be the bare minimum, would it not? And you and I see this as parents in the raising of our children. You have siblings, they're in conflict one with another. So you tell the offending child, you say you're sorry, ask for forgiveness. No, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And you have to say to the other, the offended child, okay, now forgive them. No, I forgive you. And that's how it goes, and you as parents know that generally the heart is not changed. But we have to teach them to go through the motions. And as we teach and we train and we show them the word of God and we show by our own examples this forgiveness, eventually God begins to change the heart that we can't touch, even in our own children. 
and as adults, we're not that much different. We're just a little bit more mature about how we go about these things. Yeah, I'll forgive you. I don't have to like you. I don't have to cooperate with you. I don't have to hang out with you. I don't have to serve with you. What do you think Paul meant when he says of Philemon, I know you will do more than is asked. Going beyond simply forgiving and restoring Onesimus, beyond accepting him now as a brother in Christ, perhaps Philemon would personally speak to the church on behalf of this man. Perhaps Philemon would take Onesimus under his wing and continue the disciple relationship that Paul had been conducting with this man. Perhaps he would personally place Onesimus in a ministry position within the church because after all, this man came back to the church with quite a commendation from Paul. He is now useful. Once useless, but now in Christ, this man is useful. He's a faithful minister. Maybe Philemon, as the offended party, is the one that's going to install this man in ministry. Perhaps the confidence that Paul had in the more that Philemon would do involved matters that concerned Philemon personally. Perhaps he expected that Philemon would be joyful and willing to forgive and restore this once rebel. He would extend the same kind of love and attention on Onesimus that Paul had been showing him being the encouragement to Onesimus that Paul had been to this man. Philemon was known for refreshing the hearts of the saints. Did we not learn that? Paul knows now this is a man that will refresh the heart of Onesimus, even though Onesimus had offended Philemon greatly. Again, we see these kind of attitudes as we parent our children. Think how refreshing it would be if two children that were once at odds with one another and forgiveness had to be extended if the offended child would give the favored position to the other child would give benefits share his candy share his toys give him the favored position at the seat of the table perhaps (laughs) our mouths would drop to the floor as parents that's not the normal conduct yet here is a reputation that you and I should strive to have within the body of Christ. Paul had confidence that Philemon was going to do more than was asked of him. Could that be said of me? We're more likely to express our hurt and disappointment when somebody confesses sin. We want them to know, you've hurt me, and there's a price to pay for hurting me. I forgive you, but... Would I go beyond the expected in restoring someone who had offended me? Would I do more for them? Would I show them more love? Would I embrace them joyfully and willingly? Would they know that I am happy to forgive, to extend grace? Because that's what a grace-receiving man must do. It's possible that Philemon sent Onesimus back to Paul. Or that he tore up his slave papers and set him free. But I read an interesting account in a commentary speculating on what became of Onesimus. Fifty years later, a Christian missionary named Ignatius, a name you're familiar with, was taken captive by Rome and taken from Antioch 
to the city of Rome to be executed and martyred for Christ. And along this journey, Ignatius wrote several letters to specific churches. One of those churches was the church in Ephesus, where Ignatius was highly commending their faithful bishop named, guess what, Onesimus. We may not be sure this was the same man, but historically, it appears this is the same Onesimus. Do you realize what Philemon's ministry of doing more to this man accomplished when it was in the hands of God? That God likely took Onesimus because of that encouragement, the refreshment that he received in Colossae. And God made a great servant for the church and later was recognized as the great bishop in Ephesus. Verse 22, we see a generous support. And I speak here of hospitality and prayer. Paul makes further requests to Philemon in now asking for his generous support. And I think one of the things that is clear from Paul's writings is that he is not a one-man show. He's not an independent free agent. He's not the great apostle Paul that accomplishes everything by himself. Although he was very committed to the work of the gospel, very gifted at that work, he did not think success in ministry rested upon him alone. And I think there is a lesson for us here as we examine verse 22 and the connection between Paul and what he's asking of Philemon and the church in Colossae. Because we can be very independent at times. We can prefer to do things ourselves. Sometimes we don't play well with others. Yeah, if the church is going to ask me to do this ministry, I'm going to handpick those that will serve with me. Why? Because we don't often play well with others. We're going to see in just a moment who Paul is playing with here. But we very much saw this side of Paul in, in Philippians, where he depended and was so appreciative of the ministry of the Philippians, giving to him gifts that abundantly supplied him with the things that he needed to sustain his ministry. And in bringing this letter to a close, Paul does not hesitate to ask Philemon for help and the Colossian church. He wants a guest room prepared for him. And he wants prayer. We know that from the letter to the Colossians that Paul had not yet traveled to that city. But we can see here it was his desire to go to Colossae. If Paul is in Rome, as we have presumed, then he anticipated be re being released soon. And he wants to visit Colossae. Given his friendship with Philemon, his new friendship with Onesimus, and his relationships with some of the other Colossian members, it would be understandable that Paul would desire this visit. He knows many of the believers there. He's heard of the church meeting in Philemon's home. He's written a letter to them addressing some of the needs in the church in Colossae. It would be natural for him to want to make a visit to this church. Now we know that Paul had desired, once released from prison, to head west to Spain. He wanted to go in uncharted gospel territory and preach the, the gospel. But in the course of time and the imprisonment that he had, and as the years would pass... Paul felt it necessary and maybe even urgent 
to head back east and retrace some of his steps at the churches that he had planted and make a visit at this church that he'd never been to. Paul trusted Philemon. And Philemon was likely a man of comfortable means. So he appeals to him, I want you to open up a room for me, prepare it, I'm coming. Lord willing, I'm coming. Paul was confident that this was Philemon's heart also. This is a man that would willingly want to minister, willingly support the work that I'm doing, even after receiving this letter that is something of a reprimand. Verse 22 does not end with the request for a guest room, though. Paul continues, For I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Now this is where we learn that Paul anticipates being released soon from prison. But he knows that this isn't going to come apart from the Lord's doing. So he's appealing for prayer in his closing thoughts here in this letter. Now at this point, the audience of this letter widens. Paul has been specifically addressing Philemon, even though from the beginning of the letter, we knew that this letter was to be read to the whole church. Nonetheless, Paul has been addressing his comments specifically to Philemon until this point. We can't see it in the English language, but in the Greek, those pronouns, your and you, are now in the plural. In other words, he's telling the church, I'm coming to you. I want all of you to be praying to this end. That the Lord would release me according to his goodwill and according to his power. So the church is bound together in prayer. Do you see the community nature, the koinonia fellowship at work here? These believers are to be praying together that God in his providence would release Paul, that Paul might come to them. Now the reason he asks for prayer is because Paul knows that it is possible that he's going to be released, but it rests with the Lord and not with men. Now, he's perhaps heard rumors among the guards that Rome doesn't really have a case against him. The consensus among those handling his imprisonment, perhaps uh, communicating to him that there wasn't a legitimate case to hold him any longer. So Paul believes he may be released, released soon. Nonetheless, Paul knew that his freedom belonged to the verdict of Christ alone. And he also knows that God chooses to work through the prayers of his people. It is not that God is directed to act by prayer, but that prayer puts our hearts and our minds where God chooses to act. Philemon and the Colossian believers were to join their hearts together in prayer for Paul as God would sovereignly move and conduct his perfect will. These prayers put the Colossian church there with the will of the Lord, waiting for God to accomplish his purposes. Now, Paul was released from prison, and we have no reason to doubt that he was able to make it to Colossae and occupy that guest room in Philemon's home. But a rather important and obvious truth that we may find in this passage is that Paul believed in the effectiveness of prayer and the importance of the church joining themselves together to pray for God's provision. We may not be able to answer all the questions regarding prayer and the sovereignty of God's will, but this much should be clear to us, that God accomplishes his purposes through prayer, the prayers of his covenant people. 
Paul looked to the church to support him in prayer. Now observe also that Paul is not looking to be released for his own comforts. Rather, he says that he will be given to the Colossian church. I will be given to you, he says. This indicates that when Paul arrived at Colossae, it was his desire to serve the needs of the church through the ministry that God had given to him as an apostle. Now, there are again a number of speculations about why Paul wanted to visit this church. And one speculation is that Paul is coming to put pressure on Philemon and the Colossian believers to follow through with the restoration and forgiveness that he's been encouraging in this letter. In other words, Dad's coming. So you better pull yourself together. I think we've all been in those positions where your dad has sent you off to do something and you hear his footsteps. And I remember those times well when we were told to clean our rooms. But we got to wrestling around or finding toys that needed to be played with. But dad's footsteps could be heard. And it's amazing how quickly you can get back to work. It could be, according to some scholars, that Paul was putting a bit of pressure on the church. I do not believe that's the case. In my mind, there's no indication from this letter that Paul needed to pressure Philemon, at least not from the extent that he's coming there to check up on them. Clearly, Paul puts pressure on Philemon to conduct the business of forgiveness and restoration as that which is proper. But Paul has clearly communicated in verse 21, I don't need to check up on you. I have confidence in you that you're going to be obedient to the gospel. And you're going to do more than is required. It's my view that Paul hopes to visit the church out of his love for these people and from a genuine desire to minister to their needs. Hence, he says, I'm going to be given to you. I'm coming to serve. I'm asking for your generous support, but I'm not coming empty-handed. I'm coming to serve you as well. And no doubt when Paul thought about coming to Colossae, he wanted to give himself in service to this community because of some of the concerns that he had heard about Colossae. He would address the doctrinal concerns. And we have that letter to the Colossian church in the book that we know as Colossians. And in that letter, Paul did deal with concerns, dealing with the early seeds of Gnostic heresy that were beginning to emerge at that time. Addressing the philosophies, the empty deceptions that threatened the principles of Christ that those believers had learned. There's a rich Christology in chapter 1 of Colossians telling us that they needed to relearn Christ and who he is. There was still the concern of Jewish traditions and Sabbaths and practices that the Christians were being encouraged to embrace along with the gospel of faith. And Paul had to address those. There were marital problems. Problems with families, children, and parents. Master-slave issues. The point that Paul makes in verse 22 is that he wants the church to pray for his release so that he can come to them in service to their needs. This was always Paul's heart to the church that he loved. Even a church that he did not plant and that he had never visited before. He knew many of these believers there personally. He knew how the Lord had equipped him to serve the body of Christ. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to serve. 
Paul did not ask for prayer for selfish reasons, but that he might be granted the privilege to be used of Christ to minister to the needs of others in the church. And again, do you see the richness of Koinonia Fellowship here? Paul dependent on their support, both in prayer and hospitality, but Paul willing to give into the fabric of the church that which was so needed and that which Paul was gifted to do. Paul appeals to the generosity of the church to support him in hospitality and prayer, but it's so that he might generously support them spiritually as well. And this brings us to the closing greeting, the salutation. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, honestly, this is Paul's traditional way to end a letter. He always ends with a prayer for grace. This letter began with a prayer for grace. But Paul is so, so uh, committed to mention others that are ministering. In almost all of his letters, as he brings the salutation or the greeting to an end, there are others involved. Epaphras, we learn from Colossians, is part of that congregation in Colossae. Very possibly, he was the man that founded the church. Maybe even being led to faith in Christ by Paul. Maybe in Ephesus they met. But Epaphras is the man that is recognized as the founder of the church in Colossae. And notice, Paul refers to him as a fellow prisoner. Now that may be symbolic, but more likely, it's because... Epaphras is there in prison with Paul because Epaphras is sending his greeting along. I want the people in Colossae to know that my heart is with them, that I love them, I care for them. In verse 24, four more men are named in this same greeting. But Paul also recognizes them as his fellow workers. There again, the fabric of the church is being exposed, meaning that they have these men with Paul have been sharing in the gospel ministry. Mark was once a man that Paul found unfit, remember, for the ministry. Because Mark had abandoned Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas got into a conflict over this man. Since then, Mark has shown himself to be faithful and devoted to the work. And I suppose that most of us, like Mark, have fallen back from Christian service in some way. Paul has come to realize that Mark has changed. Reconciliation has taken place between these two men. Do you not find that ironic, considering this letter? How could Paul ask Philemon to forgive and reconcile if Paul himself was not that kind of man? His relationship with Mark tells us that Paul himself was willing to forgive and to restore. And now he finds Mark useful and productive in the ministry. He's a fellow worker. Paul is joined with this man that once had betrayed the gospel and gone back his own way. Aristarchus was a convert from Thessalonica. He had traveled with Paul back to Jerusalem with the gift that was raised by the Macedonian churches. He was with Paul during the riot at Ephesus. He was even attacked in that riot. Both he and Luke were with Paul on the voyage to Rome and the shipwreck. 
that happened on the island of Malta. In Colossians 4.10, Paul refers to Aristarchus as his fellow prisoner, telling us that they quite likely had done jail time together. He was certainly a man devoted to the gospel work. And at the time of the writing of this letter to Philemon, Demas was recognized as a fellow worker as well. It appears that Demas had made a profession of faith, had labored with Paul such that Paul saw Demas as useful to the work, valued part of the missionary team. Sadly, at the end of Paul's life, Demas had deserted Paul, choosing the pleasures of the world over devotion to Christ. Then there's Luke, the physician is the last of these fellow workers who wants to greet the church in Colossae. Luke had traveled extensively with Paul on his missionary journeys, was present in many of the cities and the establishment of many of the churches. He was also present with Paul on that voyage that landed in a shipwreck. But he authored the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, being a man that's very diligent, record the history of Jesus Christ and the early church. And when we look at these workers... It should make us realize how ministry is not all that much different than it was for even the Apostle Paul. We might think of Paul as like the ultimate apostle who put together a crack team of missionaries. Look at this crack team. Some are willing to suffer greatly. Some even imprisoned. Some fall away and then are restored and had to be forgiven and built up again in the faith. Some have defected completely apostatize the faith, while others continue to go the distance despite the hardship. Do you see the men that Paul was willing to work with? He wasn't a perfect servant. And he worked with a bunch of imperfect specimens, it would appear. Each of these servants, with the exception of the one that fell away, they went along with Paul, sending their greeting to Philemon because they had been faithful workers for the gospel. They were intertwined with the church in Colossae, doing the same work, laboring together. Their greeting is an expression of love and unity as they recognize what they have in common in Christ, the fellowship of their faith. Paul then prays for the church, commending them to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what compels Paul to close this letter is the bond that they all have, that we all have, in our dependency on God's grace. This is no casual matter with Paul. It's not just a flowery expression to etch at the bottom part of your letter, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Isn't that flowery? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a wonderful sentiment? It's not just a mere sentiment with Paul. He opens this letter with an appeal for grace. He commends Philemon for being a minister of grace to the church. He then appeals to Philemon to show grace to a new member of the family of God. It is then right for Paul to pray to Christ for this same grace to rest upon the spirit of every believer. This is what binds us together as a church in fellowship. We are recipients of grace. We are also ministers of grace. Now, in conclusion, as we close our study of Philemon, I want to again emphasize the richness of this little letter. It is a general message of importance to our understanding of the obligation that all believers have to the fellowship of our faith, a fellowship one with another. And I'm talking about integrated into each other's lives. It is also at a specific appeal 
to all of us regarding to how we deal graciously with offenses among us as God's grace has been towards us in our offenses. So some closing principles that we can take home, I hope, from our study. Number one, the fellowship of our faith must find us spiritually invested in each other's lives. It is not enough to simply make an appearance into the fellowship as if that means something to us. We need to involve ourselves intimately in each other's lives because this is what our master directs us to do. We should do this willingly, generously, eagerly, with joy being spiritually invested in each other's lives. Second, the fellowship of our faith must be characterized by grace. It must be characterized by grace. The more we understand and the value that we place on the grace of God that has been poured out to me or us as individual believers, the more grace we're going to extend towards others. And sadly, in churches that are known for being critical and judgmental and sometimes intolerant. It is because of a weak view of grace. How wonderful if we can be known for our love. How wonderful to be known for how we refresh each other's hearts. And this brings us to a third conclusion this morning. The fellowship of our faith can be a place where we willingly do more for Christ and his church, not less where we do more for Christ and his church, not less. Grace has been generously supplied, therefore grace must generously be applied. We have received this grace, now apply this grace. This is what this letter is teaching us. How to restore, how to forgive, how to be integrated in each other's lives because we're part of the family of God and we're under a very gracious master. He has supplied grace generously to us. Brothers and sisters, we need to apply that grace generously to one another. And I believe this is the overarching message that Philemon is giving to the church in a very practical way. Father, as we come now to this place in our service where our hearts are given over in worship of you, because of your sacrifice on our behalf, the willingness of, of your sacrifice, both in bodily form and, and to give yourself over in death, speaks to the love that you have for sinners, the magnitude of your grace, the depth of your mercy. We are here at this moment to appreciate that value, to love you for that value, to worship you, and I pray that you might find in us a church that is growing in our graciousness, one with another. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.